Good afternoon, and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us over EWTN Radio. This program is, uh, to a certain extent, a continuation of the Journey Home program from Monday night. It allows me each week to invite the guest who gave their journey on the Journey Home program to spend some time in the Deep in Scripture program to talk about some of the Scripture texts that open their heart to a deeper walk with our Lord Jesus and His Church. And such is the case this week. Father Sean Gould was our guest on Monday night, and now he's here to join us in the studio. Father Gould, good to have you here. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's good to have you here. And uh, for those of you that didn't have a chance yet to hear the Monday night program, of course, you can do that. Go to EWTN.com and or YouTube is a number of options, I think, that you can go to to listen to the program, as well as chnetwork.org, our website, where you can listen to Journey Home and you can hear Father Gould's more detailed journey, not only into the Catholic Church from being a a, a, a cradle Presbyterian, cradle right. Calvinist, uh, to uh, hearing the call to Catholic priesthood. Before I... Uh, I want to give a little summary, Father, sure. of your of your journey. Just for those that didn't hear the program, Father Sean Gould grew up in Grand Haven, Michigan, which, as he mentioned on the program, was a, a, a almost a small Bible belt in that part of Michigan that's very strongly uh, Presbyterian Calvinist. He was baptized in Reformed Church of America and raised in the Presbyterian Church, USA, attended the University of Notre Dame, studying in a classical great books program. He then attended the University of California at Berkeley for law school. Following law school, he practiced first in a large firm in Milwaukee for two years. It was during his time in Milwaukee that he was received into full communion with the Catholic Church. He then moved to Chicago to work in another large law firm, and in 2005 entered the major seminary for the Archdiocese of Chicago, the University of St. Mary of the Lake at Mundelein Seminary. Then he was ordained in 2010 for the Archdiocese of Chicago and has been serving since then as the associate pastor of St. Alphonsus Church in the city's Lakeview neighborhood. Now, is that right in the in the midst of Chicago, or is it a suburb? Or? No, it is right in the in Chicago, um, what I think people would consider the—it's not right down in the city center, but it's um, certainly in the thick of things. Lakeview was a suburb um, at one point yeah. uh, when the— you know, the city limits were much smaller. So after the Chicago fire, a lot of people moved into Lakeview because they, it was cheaper because Chicago increased its, um, the requirements for buildings. So, oh. <laughs> and you could still have the cheaper buildings in Lakeview, but now it's well within the, within the city limits. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, glad to have you on the program, uh, Father. And <clears throat> what we try to do in this, ep- this episode of the Deep in Scripture is, okay, what are some scriptures that were important to your journey, important mm-hmm. to now uh, maybe in being a Catholic, and particularly either verses that you didn't notice when you were a Presbyterian right. or that means something different. And maybe first in general, you've chosen a fair handful here, uh-huh. but that's fine. So in general, why these verses? Yeah, these were, uh, these were ones that I was uh, praying with, uh, often... Um, Guide read the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, a number of times uh, when I was Protestant. Yeah. Um, I'd pick up and read through a gospel or, or something. Um, but as you know, there, there's a difference between reading and then noticing. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there were a number of passages where I read them, um, I'm sure, but didn't they didn't impact me. They, the, uh, the Catholic nature of them didn't impact me. So uh, that's certainly the case with some of them. Others I, I read and I noticed, um, but then the the Catholic connection wasn't made. So um, what happened during my uh, conversion process is at one point I began to go back and read through explicitly thinking like, what would a Catholic, how would he or hmm. she read this? And that for some of the passages that, that changed. And I thought, hmm, this is very, <laughs> very interesting. So Yeah, well, the first passage that... Yeah. And, and I will admit to the uh, uh, deep in Scripture audience that uh, some of these are, are key passages that are awaken many yeah. men and women home to the church. I mean, that's why they're key apologetic passages, because right. either as Protestants we ignored them or had to come up with a knee-jerk answer to explain right. <laughs> the meaning to fit it into our particular tradition. Right. Uh, 
though I didn't use that word as a Protestant. But uh, but the, so let, let me begin with with a particular passage that's familiar to our audience. But uh, I'll admit to you that I didn't preach on this in the ten years I was a sure. Protestant minister, and that's John chapter six, mm-hmm. verses forty-eight through fifty-eight. Let me read these, Father, and mm-hmm. then. What I'd like you to begin by discussing is, all right, how did you view these as a Presbyterian? Right. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his bread, excuse me, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, Father Sean, let me ask you, do you remember hearing that as a Presbyterian? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, as we've, uh, we've talked about the the Protestant pastor usually can pick his own scriptures um, to talk about, which has some advantages, but that it also means that um, they're just going to, uh, I mean, for perfectly natural reasons, they're just going to omit um, mm-hmm. a good portion, whereas um, at least in our, our Catholic way of understanding it, the church tells us what we need to read and um, right. and preach about. So, no, I don't remember ever hearing a, a Protestant sermon about um, Jesus being the bread of life. Uh, when I read this uh, scripture, as I did, uh, plenty of times. Uh, what I had in my mind was um, Jesus just being symbolic. He's being metaphorical here, just like he says he's a vine yep. um, the, or a door, those kinds of things. Um, there's a there's a movie called Lady Jane. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Lady Jane? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, uh, and so this is... Um, this is Jane, who's queen for nine days or something. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I've seen that movie recently. Right. Right. And she's uh, she's a very knowledgeable young woman, um, and she brings up exactly those because uh, the, the father, Dr. Fecknum or something like that, comes in, and they get into a discussion about the Eucharist, and she says, but did Jesus Jesus said he was a vine. He was a door. Was he a vine? Was he a door? <laughs> and he, uh, the, the priest doesn't really respond at that point, but... Um, he encourages her thinking, right? But, but so I read these. I, I will and, say, I remember yeah. seeing that movie not that long ago yeah. and thinking, now wait a second. Uh, <laughs> is this actually the documented uh, dialogue between Lady Jane right. and his priest, or was that I, the modern, yeah, which I, was interesting because yeah. it was the anti-Catholic bias right. that was in that movie. Right, absolutely. Well, I'm going to guess it's the modern. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but... So that's the way I, I read it, that Jesus is just being metaphorical here. Um, and I didn't really focus in on the reaction, which is, comes after this. I mean, you can't read the whole chapter or something. But, of course, the disciples, a lot of the disciples say, we're, we can't, yeah. uh, we're not going to accept this. That's too ridiculous. Uh, and they leave. And in my Protestant reading of it, I, I simply didn't even notice the, the reaction to it because I, I don't know, I had blinders on or something. So, And the fact that that Jesus is so specific here, and he repeats it. Uh, flesh is food indeed, and he keeps saying it. You have to eat me. <laughs> That's if you want to have life. Um, so once I started to understand, uh, as I was reading my way into the church and discussing with my friends, the sacramental idea that um, Jesus, who is God, the one eternal God, um, becomes uh, man without in any way ceasing to be God, he ha- he himself is in a way uh, like the we call him the Ur sacrament. He's the source of all sacrament because he's both visible and invisible. And what's happening with the sacraments is the extension of the incarnation to us. Mm-hmm. And what started to make sense to me was that God, who who loves matter, um, who's uh, dying in some sense to redeem it, because Saint Paul says that all creation yearns for the redemption of the mm-hmm. or the revelation of the sons of God. Right, so. God loves uh, material creation. Why wouldn't he use it to extend his grace to us, um, particularly so that we, 
who are created to know through our senses primarily, um, would know that his grace is being given to us. Um, there's an assurance with the Catholic sacramentality that isn't there with the Protestants. So when I was going back to this, I was thinking, Jesus wants to save us not only soul but body. Why? Maybe there would be sense to our actually eating him um, so that we could become what he is. So he dies for us on the cross, and he does all of the work necessary for our salvation. And yet uh, the grace that he's merited for us needs to be communicated, communicated. And um, I, could, I started to see the logic of it, that Jesus would want that to happen um, not only invisibly but visibly. And then I, you know, I went back through and I reread it, and it just seemed to me so very clear. Um, and then I connected that with um, the early church fathers, so um, the apostolic fathers, particularly, as I said in the, the other program, St. Ignatius of Antioch. Um, not only is St. Ignatius very clear that we need to be in communion with the bishop if we want to be in communion mm-hmm. with the apostolic church, which is how we have to be in communion with Christ himself, but he's also very clear about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that this is not just bread any longer um, that's being consumed. It's Christ himself. And I think um, it was either he or Irenaeus mm-hmm. that specifically said, don't trust your senses. Yeah. One of those you know, was saying, don't. Right, right. Don't base what you believe to be true or not on your senses. Right, right. Which is really the problem that still exists all these Ab- centuries later. Oh, absolutely. Uh I think it's um, I think it's increased even that it, since the Enlightenment, um, the the idea that the natural sciences are exhaust science, hmm. that an exhaust yep. knowledge, that we reduce all of knowledge to what you can see and touch and verify that way, um, that the world really is only created of matter, um, and that there isn't this other invisible aspect of things, is going to affect the way that we look at the sacraments, for example. I, I mean, it's so uh, it's a little bit depressing, but it just it's a motive to preach more. But that even Catholics who have been brought up in the faith are starting to, if they're polled about it, will not believe in the real presence of Christ. In the, well, in given the this passage, yeah. let me ask you a couple mm-hmm. adjoining questions, mm-hmm. Father, because now you see it from the perspective of a priest who right. has this great privilege of celebrating the the great mysteries of the Church, right? Uh, when I was on the journey, the reason that this particular passage snuck up on me mm-hmm. and, and bit me mm-hmm. was because because uh, I hadn't preached on this passage mm-hmm. at all. But it was because John 15 was my favorite passage. Mm. In other words, I am the vine, you are the branches, right. that whole section. And I, I had often taught on our need to abide in Christ. Right. And I remember as a Presbyterian struggling with, what do I tell the people on how you abide in Jesus? Right. You, you know what I mean? I mean yes. And, and yeah. I don't know if you ever dealt with that question when you were in your, I mean, he says you, you are to abide in me and mm-hmm. I in you. Right. But from a Presbyterian standpoint, well, how do I abide in him? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Is uh, it's it that is the key? I think um, that we need to be connected with Christ. It's His life that's being given to us, and if we're not connected with Him, then we don't have life. And uh, Saint Athanasius is great about this. He he's trying to argue against the Arians, and he says, "Why does it have to be God who is in the flesh? Because it's only if it's God who is in the flesh for us that we." Um, will have his own life. Otherwise, everything else is affected by sin, and we can't, you know, Christ couldn't be a savior. But so we need to be connected with him, and he connects us with himself um, through this church of his that he founded on the apostles. And then not even just through preaching, which is always the beginning, Mm -hmm. um, but that there is after the preaching of the word and a response of faith, then there's this physical, ontological being, existential connection to him <laughs> that he wants us to have. Because otherwise, it's all it could just be in our mind. And I, I think that's... Um, yeah, the Protestant way, uh, I mean, at least the evangelicals often, to have this personal relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus. I mean, I, I right. suppose that actually is another way of saying abiding in him mm-hmm. and he in me. Mm-hmm. But... From a Calvinist perspective, we would have seen the abiding relationship more in a passive way. In other words, right. grace did it. Right. I had nothing to do with it. Right. If right. you were, if you were, uh, uh, 
you know, very staunch Calvinist, you would have said it's right. all passive. Right, right. Had nothing to do with us. Right. But the the uh, the grammar of John 15 is a command. Right. So you can't command something that's passive. Right, right. No, it's it's got to be at least the mystery of God's grace in our free action. Right. So right. Uh, so I'm struggling with that as a Presbyterian. You know, right. What does it mean to abide? And especially then mm-hmm. right after that, mm-hmm. when Jesus says um, that apart from me, you can do nothing a little bit right. after that. Right. So again, there's I always as a, as a Calvinist, that's the passive. I can't nothing. Everything's grace. Apart right. from Him, I can do nothing. Right. Yet it's a command. Right. See what struck me then was that there's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus tells us how to abide. Right. <laughs> and it's, that's what snuck up on me. Right. Right. That's John. Six fifty six. He who uh-huh. eats my flesh and drinks my blood right. abides in me. Right. So from a priest standpoint, talk about how the Eucharist is the way that we abide in him, he right. and us. And again, that's where we are linked with him. Right. That enables us to be who we're called to be. Right. It's uh in a sense, it is all grace, but it's um, different kinds of grace, as it were, because all of creation is a grace. We didn't earn creation. We didn't earn our creation. Mm-hmm. So creation is a grace. But when we talk about grace, usually we're talking about that which has been merited for us by Christ and is then communicated for our salvation, which brings us back to the Father. So the um, the the beauty, uh, the logic of, of Christ giving himself to us, not only in um, an intellectual sense, but in, a, in an existential sense, in the very being of ourselves, is that um, he he wants us to be um, like our salvation is for our sanctification, and he's actually transforming us into holy people. So I think uh, you know, from my understanding, I, I had to go from the forensic idea of our justification yep. to one that meant we really were holy. So. Um, that we're not always going to be sinners, that a sinner can't abide in the presence of God because God is all holy. Uh, so the, the Lutheran idea, uh, the classic Lutheran idea was um, we're coded with Christ, that the Father looks at Christ, who is, of course, perfect and holy, and um, decides because of his good pleasure in him not, not to look at our sins. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of the, the Catholic understanding of salvation is, yes, it's all grace. Um, yes, God does the primary work. But what his grace does is not overwhelm us. It doesn't just coat us. It transforms us into saints. And it made sense that he would use a visible means for this um, because we are also visible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so this, it's a more comprehensive salvation. And um, so I think that's it. We the, the sacrament is never taken away from the word. It's not like it's magic. Um, the sacraments aren't magic where people take them unknowingly and now they're, yeah. tra- you know, it's you zapped or something. So there's always, um, faith always has to be a part of it. We don't disagree with the, with our Protestant brothers and sisters there, but it's also not the end. Faith leads to love and we abide in Christ's love, not just mentally, but um, even even physically. So Well, there's that, the beauty of the mystery. Mm-hmm. It's its not an either or, it's a both and. The, right, really, the right. mystery of that, and we've mentioned that many times in this program, that, well, this, in the in the part that I've just drawn our attention to in relationship mm-hmm. to your, is, Father, maybe the primary reason that I do the Journey Home program, that the Coming Home Network exists, that we do deep in Scripture, is because it's not that we stand in judgment of people outside the church. Right. We, we, the church doesn't do that. Right. It's more that we recognize just what these verses say. Right. And the way that you have an abiding relationship with Jesus is through the sacraments. Right. And so we want our separated brethren to experience the fullness of the sacraments. Right, exactly. Exactly. That when we consume Christ in the Eucharist— um, he is actually changing us, and we're, we're present at Calvary. We're present at the resurrection, and he's he's doing for us what has been um, done for him by his Father. So, um, yes. No. Yeah. Okay, sitting across from me as a priest, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Now you you in your own journey studied history, and that was as you quoted Newman saying that become deep in history is a cease to be Protestant. It comes from the development of the book on the development of doctrine right. essay. 
But you also recognize that there's a few nasty Catholics in history. <laughs> sure. In fact, what strikes me is that it seems in history that the Catholics that cause the biggest problems are the ones that receive the most sacraments. Sure. <laughs> Right? I mean, yeah. your average layperson has been baptized and, right. and, right. and catechized, confirmed, sure. maybe married, right. receives. A, but the, those right. priests and bishops and oh, popes absolutely. Yeah. got more of the grace of the sacraments. Right. But it didn't work. <laughs> so talk about that. I right. mean, there are Catholics that experience the fullness of the graces of right. the sacraments, right. but they don't seem to be abiding very well. Right. So ab- absolutely. The... Um, the arch heretics of old were always priests or bishops, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Arius is a priest of Alexandria, and Nestorius is a patriarch, the bishop of Constantinople. Um, you've got like Alexander the Sixth, the Borgia popes. It, so, sure, th- I think the the key here was um, for me to understand that when God's grace works in our lives, it's um, it. it requires our cooperation. And it's not that we stand over against God as as though we're independent of him or anything, but God's grace enables us to then make the choice to be for him or against him. Without his grace, we actually couldn't even make the choice to be for him. Um, But with his grace, we now have the choice to make. Do we want to be truly free and relying on God, or are we going to once again turn in on ourselves? So we receive the grace and the sacraments, and... um, they will do their work, right? Somebody is baptized. They really are baptized. Um, when I received my the grace of ordination. You know, I'm a priest. But, um, but then that can be fruitful in my life or not. And that's going to have to do with whether or not I respond um, in faith and hope and love to the grace that's been given to me. So, And you mentioned um, in the program on Monday night that you were a, a reader of C.S. Lewis. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, one of his great books is The Screwtape Letters. Yes. Which really emphasizes when you think about those men that received the sacraments in which they gave their life in service as priests, deacons, bishops, and and popes. Well, they're going to awaken the battle that C.S. Lewis talks about in Screwtape Letters. Right, absolutely. Um, I think you, you can see it with the seminarians, but also with the priests, that we, we have to what C.S. Lewis says is you, you want to avoid the two extremes. On the one hand, don't deny the existence of Satan and the demons, because then if you, if you deny the existence, you can't be conscious about it, having a battle with them. Yeah. On the other hand, you don't want to be so enthralled with them that you, <laughs> you know, you're seeking them out and um, trying to manipulate them or be tempted in that way. So to have a very uh, sort of practical thing, we know they exist. That's part of Revelation. It's also part of common experience. Um, but we also know that by the grace of Christ, Christ has already won the victory, so we don't need to fear them. Um, but be aware that we're subject to temptation from them, and maybe some more extraordinary things, but usually temptation. And that, yes, when we are engaged in this spiritual battle, St. Paul says we're battling against powers and principalities here. You know, The other human beings, even if they're, we think they're in the wrong camp, are not our true enemy, right? We right. want to call them into, our, into Christ's camp. Um, powers and principalities are warring against us, and we want to be aware of it, know about the victory of Christ, and um, do our best to stay, uh, to abide in that Holy Spirit in Christ. So. Yeah, that, that, that mysterious uh, uh, pair mm-hmm. of, on the one hand, humble humility, mm-hmm. yet on the other hand, the bold strength in Christ right, right. to fight the battle. Absolutely. Yet never being humbled and never right. all of a sudden get... Elevated ourselves to think oh, it was right. me. Oh, exactly. No, I think um, it's the it's the temptation that happens after a great retreat. For example, you have this wonderful experience in prayer with God, and then right after that, it's you know it happens where people are tempted suddenly, and um, or maybe they've just gone to confession actually, and then right after that, they're tempted. It's um, Saint Paul says it's when he's weak that he's strong, and that's because he recognizes his weakness. Um, then he knows that when he's accomplishing something, it's not him so much. It is Christ working through him. So, All right. Thank you, Father. Let's pause there. We'll come back in a little bit. We'll, we've got a long list of verses. We'll figure sure. which one we want to jump on next. But thank you for that. Uh, you're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm coming to you from the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for Wings, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your Wings today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Father Sean Gould from Chicago uh, area, and uh, he's a former Presbyterian. Um, we've got a couple more passages to uh, to jump into, Father. you got a bunch of them, but these are all great, and I'm, I'm glad you've chosen these. Uh, Luke 1, 42-43. Let me read this, and then if you would, Father, why? Again, I'd like to know what you do with this one when you were a Presbyterian. Sure. This is... Uh, uh, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, and this is uh, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. right? This, right? This is Elizabeth uh, speaking to Mary. She exclaimed with a loud cry, cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Yeah, so what I did with that as a Protestant is not pay any attention to it. <laughs> uh, Mary is one of those um, figures that would come up around Christmas time, but only, you know, insofar as you've got a, a nativity scene or um, maybe a, a pageant, Christmas pageant. But she wouldn't come up any other time. Um, and I, it was surprising to me when I was reading Calvin before I um, became Catholic that Calvin and, of course, Luther too. They had a great devotion to Mary. Right. Um, and it actually is quite Calvinistic. After all, God can do whatever he wants with his grace. So if he wants to bless Mary more than anybody right. else, why not? Um, <laughs> so what I did with this was uh, just not pay any attention to it. What I think is interesting about this is when I I was getting closer to becoming Catholic and I was going back through and reading some scriptures, I had read some apologetics works where, they're, of course, they're pulling out the scriptures that um, Protestants may not pay as much attention to. And Mary was one of the things I had right. to understand more clearly in the church's teaching on her. And they would pull this out and say, look, for instance, the Hail Mary that we say is part of the rosary. You know, it's it's scriptural, right? The first part is from the scripture. The second part is just her asking um, to pray for us. And, um, and I think it's interesting here that Elizabeth isn't just saying, you know, thanks be to God, my Lord has come to me. But um, why is it granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So it's not just Christ. It's Christ coming through, um, through Mary. Um, what... It was an eye-opener to me, um, thinking about how God's grace works in our lives, um, that God doesn't—he has a personal relationship with with us. um, So we don't—in no way are we opposed to that. um, (laughs) But at the same time, he will give his grace to some for others. And at least partially what's happening with Mary is that he is exalting her so that we can see— first, so that the Lord can come into the world. After all, it's through her, let it be done to me according to thy word, that— um, that Christ comes into the into the world in our humanity, but then we can also see 
what God is willing to do for us. He wants to not only perfect us, but glorify us and we can raise us up so that, so we say Mary is queen of heaven. That means a human being is queen of heaven um, over the angels. Um, so when I started to see the benefit to us um, of the grace that could be given to someone, I thought this is great. And then I started to think too, um, I partially through uh, reading The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis or yeah. um, or Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, we have to get over these sins of ours, right? That has to be done. We, you can't be prideful and envious and actually <coughs> oh, bless you, and yeah. enjoy heaven, right? It's not just that God doesn't look at our sins or something and you know forgives us the way a judge might say you're free to go. It's that we actually, if we want to enjoy heaven, enjoy God's presence, we have to be holy ourselves means we have to give up these attachments and the saints especially mary i think helps us in this way uh, we cannot be envious and enjoy mm-hmm. heaven because god distributes his grace differently mary is already has the highest position and um, because of her the work and the incarnation so if we can enjoy in a sense the the gifts that god has given to mary that means we're, we're getting over envy <laughs> which is a good thing um so to exalt uh, yeah i remember that image that c.s lewis uses in the great divorce when these visitors from hell or purgatory, I forget right. where exactly. Depends it, on if you stay or you leave. <laughs> yeah, you're right, right. Exactly, there right. was. But when they, they couldn't even walk on the grass. Right, right. Exactly. You know, that the, the, the difference. Right. And it requires us to, in our humility, to recognize we, we see things yet dimly. Right. And so, right. the as you've said, the beauty of Mary is yet in our dimness, God gives us a glimpse of what. Right. A person is like when they're full of grace. Exactly, um, and uh, it just again it shows. Uh, well, really, it it, it even has a, a, something to say about why we baptize newborns, right? Because here we have this work of grace, just like Mary didn't deserve, well, neither does any person right. born. No, she can't possibly deserve her the <laughs> grace that's given to her. Um, you know, it's, it, especially the immaculate, the grace of the immaculate conception, which I of course had to wrap my mind around. Um, <laughs> ultimately, I, I accepted those first of all because the the church taught them, and once I accepted that, uh, the Holy Spirit can't let the church teach wrongly; otherwise, we'd never know what the gospel was. Um, but once I had accepted that, then the fittingness of it became apparent to me um, that God can do with what He wants with His grace. But it's. Um, He's showing us that sin doesn't have the last word. It's not even a very strong word if we don't let it. Um, and there's no, there's hardly a limit to the glory that he will give us if we let him. Um, so, and Verse 43 is also a wonderful expression by Elizabeth of the attitude that we ought to have mm-hmm. towards Our Lady, uh, where she says, Why is this granted me right. that the mother of my Lord should come? to me right i mean in a way that is the key attitude as the foundation for devotion to our lady right uh right i mean it's a she's not only been graced but she is a conduit of grace Uh, so god wants us not only to um, the first commandment is to love the lord our god with our whole heart mind soul and strength but then second which is like it to love our neighbors ourselves he wants to bring us back into communion with each other as well so um we are we're a family um in the in the catholic faith right we're one big family that the children of god and mary is given to us as a mother so um it's a god gives her grace and then through her is also bringing us and it doesn't separate us it brings us closer to the lord let me ask you another question if i could father Mm -hmm. um if you remember when you were a presbyterian i was a presbyterian Mm -hmm. we did not understand catholics who had devotion to our lady right i didn't no and and admittedly i remember seeing catholics that seemed to me to have a little too much devotion to our lady so there's the official teaching of the church and then there might be right uh, poorly catechized expressions of that. Address right. that. What is, how do we understand Catholic devotion to Our Lady? Right. That um, there's no devotion, authentic devotion to Mary, that could ever detract from the glory and the unique um, the unique station of Christ because Mary is not God and Jesus is. Um, we don't adore Mary. We do adore Christ. Um, so authentic devotion is always an expression of um, the grace that's been given to her, which always leads back to her son. 
And so I, I too, I, I would see uh, or hear about more likely Catholic devotions and think, oh, superstitious nonsense, and, <laughs> and uh, why don't they just pray to God? Um, and this was sometimes backed up by things I would hear where really major things the, the people would go to God for, but little things they go to the saints for as so they couldn't bother God with them. Um, so that's not quite what we, right. we mean, right? We, we ask the saints to pray for us because we believe we're still connected with them by grace and that um, we just like we pray for people right now. I get asked to pray for people all the time. I asked people when I was a Protestant to pray for me. We think that's a good, a holy thing to do. And we think that God is actually using our prayers in some way, even though we can't think about it in terms of cause and effect in our in an ordinary physical way, it doesn't make quite sense. But we uh, we believe in the in the truly efficacious nature of prayer. So why not have these um, saints who continue to exist in the presence of God pray for us? Um, it's a it shows that the resurrection, uh, which has already happened in Christ um, and for Mary too, um, is it has an effect right now for us. It's not simply what we're simply waiting for in the future. Um, it's now. I mean, we hope for perfection later, but... Um, I w- recently was... You had mentioned Monday night that you were involved with some of the great books and right. the great old books. And recently I, I've been reading through a collection of the history of English short stories. Mm-hmm. And when you read some of the short stories from the 1700s, some of them are mysteries and ghost stories and such like that. Right. that the kind of uh, Hawthorne and some of these writers were really into that. But I remember reading recently, it was a Protestant writer, an English Protestant writer. Mm-hmm. But the main character in the story was talking about how if we could see, we would see that we're surrounded by angels. Right, yeah. And what that reminded me of is that at, there was a time when our separated brethren agreed with us Catholics that the veil right. between here and eternity is very thin. Right, right. But enlightenment and other things destroyed that to give many an idea that heaven's way, 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 away. And, right. I'm, and I'm, I'm separated from my departed ones right. a long way off. Right. But the point is the veil's very thin. Right. That's uh, so that... The, the whole, of course, it was in the ancient church too, iconoclasm, trying to take away those images of the, either Christ or the saints, and the angels. Um, I think it's part of that tendency to try and reduce reality to just the material world that we can um, see and touch. The, the images of Mary and the other saints are given to us to remind us, right? We use our senses just like everybody else, but it reminds us of an invisible reality that she exists right now yeah. <laughs> and uh, is interceding for us uh, with her son. And uh, so it's always a reminder that exactly as you said, this veil is very, very thin, especially when we're at Mass. We are on the threshold of heaven, um, which is a tremendous thing if we can try and remember it. St. Alphonsus, the church where I am I'm a priest right now, is great because it was built in 1889. It's a wonderful Gothic church filled with saints um, mm-hmm. and not in a kitschy way or something. It's very noble and you can look in there, and you are immediately drawn to think of heavenly realities. And you know, St. Paul is always saying we need to remember those heavenly realities because otherwise we'll get caught up in, um, in the drudgery of this life, and we, that could lead to despair, right? We have to remember that the victory has already been won, that it's being played out now, um, and that we're, we're on to heaven. And, but it's not something we're just waiting for. Father, we are waiting. All right. Well, let's take a pause again, Father, for another break, and then we'll come back at time for at least one more passage when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Father Sean Gould, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. 
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. Our guest today is Father Sean Gould, and we're looking at a, a selection of, of scriptures, uh, with a lot of them, uh, and we wish we had more time for all of them. But the next verse that you've chosen was important to me, too, on my own journey, and that's Romans ten, fourteen through 15. Now, I remember using verse 14 as the reason that I was up in the pulpit every Sunday. I sure. Mean, there you go. Are they going to... Uh, right. You know, verse 14, how are men to call upon him and whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard, never heard, and how are they to hear without a preacher? Right. So there we are. If anything, that's the reason that I mentioned to you during the break one time that uh, in the big Presbyterian churches, the head pastor, all he does is preach. Right, absolutely. <laughs> he delegates yeah. everything else to his staff, and he spends all week preparing his sermon. Yeah. But verse 15 goes on, yes. and it says, And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now again, Father, as a Presbyterian, did, you, did this addition to verse 14 make sense to you? Uh, <laughs> well, that that, uh, that brought up immediately the question of. Um, so I, I don't remember what I thought when I was uh, when I was not even thinking about the Catholic faith about that passage. I, I suspect it was one I just um, sort of uh, just skipped over. Um, and let but, me add in here, just as you're yeah. thinking about this, for those of you that might be listening that are not Catholic, I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't uncommon for non-Catholic ministers to believe that the reason they're a pastor is because they just discerned right. from somewhere that God was calling them to go to seminary and go to ministry. Right. That was all they needed to hear in the heart of hearts, and they were convicted. Right. Or somebody happened to say, you know, I think you'd make a good minister. So, you know, that was it. Right. No connection to any body, any authority. Right. I mean, that was common amongst Presbyterians. Right. Uh so, right, we have this personal relationship with God, and yet no single person who's been alive for, I don't know, the last 1980 years knows about Jesus Christ except from the apostles that he sent out into the world. And uh, so we connected with some other passages as well where Jesus sends out the 70 disciples um, or uh, Matthew 16 where he gives Peter the keys. Um, Jesus Christ is not only saving us from our sins, but he is glorifying us by sharing his mission with us. And he does it in a very specific way. He gives his own authority um, to the apostles. I mean, it's not his complete authority, but it's a good share of it because he says those sins you retain are retained in heaven. That's an astounding thing. Um, what you bind on yeah. earth is bound in heaven. When he breathes on them in John's gospel and says whose sins you forgive are forgiven, um, there is a, a sense in which the, the principal sends out the agent. So the father sent the son, and the son brings people back to the father. But the son sent out his chosen uh, apostles, and it's because of their direct connection with him that they, they have his authority. So uh, that, was the, that was key for me. <laughs> um, how are we going to believe in him if we haven't heard about him? That's pretty clear. But how do we hear about him authentically? Because otherwise we can just create a Christ out of our own uh, choosing. So the, like the German, um, I think, but usually Lutheran Bible scholars who in every time they're, they're exegeting the scriptures, Christ turns into them, right? Or yeah. Christ turns into the political radical or whatever it might be. I mean, the, the way the yeah, scripture— Who is it that, that <laughs> modern—someone yeah. described that modern theologians are like someone looking into a deep well and see the, the image of their own face. Oh, absolutely, right. Uh, that's kind of that's part of modernism, even with modern art. The idea is you don't want to impose a form on people. It's more like a Rorschach test. You can see whatever you want in it. Yeah. Um, but that's true. Unfortunately, that's true. So the scriptures are wonderful. They're inspired by God. Um, God is the primary author. We believe that as Catholics. And yet, the purpose of them is not um, to supplant the personal, the the agent principal relationship of the apostles that He sent out. So it's. Um, Someone has to be sent. A book does not send anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so it has to be an authority. And even with the Presbyterians, you know, they, the, the Presbyterian pastor is not actually a member of the congregation, right? So he's, um, he's a member of the pres, uh, not the presbyterate, Pres- but the, the well, uh, presbytery. Right. Yeah. So he's, theoretically, he's being sent, even though there's a call that he's responding to. So even in the Presbyterian church, there was some idea that it, you know, it wasn't just people rising up out of nowhere. And yet... There was a laying on of hands. Right, for the ordination. And um, 
But, you know, how can you both accept that but then reject the apostolic authority of this church that in history seems to always be there, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, well, the, again, the issue is, okay, um, when, when we in the Coming Home Network talk to non-Catholic clergy mm-hmm. who claim that they have been sent, well, right. how, what do you mean you've been sent? Well, right. I was ordained back on such and such a date 15 years ago. Okay. Right. Well, who laid their hands on you? Well, right. such and such. Well, who sent them? Right, exactly. And so you, you end up yeah. with this whole issue of apostolic authority, yeah. apostolic uh, deposit of faith, yeah. and apostolic succession, yeah. you know, because you trace back. Right. Uh, right. And it isn't a magical thing. I mean, that might be good to explain there. You know, this issue right. of sent brings us to the issue of apostolic succession. Right. But it's not some passing on of the magic from one to the other, there's, there's no. an issue here. Right. Uh, so there is the sacramental grace that's being handed on. So in terms of being able to um, to celebrate the Eucharist or to forgive sins, the power that the, the apostles received when Christ gave it to them, when he breathes on them, which is like the breathing out of the Spirit in Genesis, kind of creating a, a new, new something, um, that does have to be passed on. Um, but then there's also... Um, our faith is apostolic because it's founded on the apostles, but also because they conti- their ministry continues to be present and active right now, today. The, um, the church is a living entity. It's not simply an historical reality. So I, I think that's exactly it. We can, the, the bishops um, you know, can trace their lineage back. It's not that it makes them perfect, right? When you're, you're ordained, you're not suddenly forever, uh, as we well know from news things. Yep. It's not like you're an immediately and always holy person. Um, but what it does do is guarantee that Christ is going to be present and operative through their ministry, um, even despite their sins. So, well, you see so this in Paul. Like I, I should take the time now to find this verse, but uh, it's there, <laughs> where Paul says to Timothy, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." Right. So what you see, besides the fact that Paul laid his hands on Timothy, and so you have the graces. Right, but there's also this responsibility of the one being sent to imitate, in right. great humility, the one that laid hands on him. So right. you have Paul called by our Lord Jesus. Right. Now, if we doubt that, we've got nothing left. Right. Right. Okay. But if we recognize, no, Paul's been sent, and now he, as he says in Second Timothy two two to Timothy, I want you right. to appoint others who will appoint others who will appoint others, and right. there it goes. Exactly. So, but but Timothy has this responsibility to imitate Paul. Right. And then he tells it to the person that he ordains. No, you imitate me as I imitate Paul, as I imitate Christ. Right. That's come down to the to today. Right. And I know what I, I thought at the time and um others I'm sure they they think of the telephone game where you've got people lined up and you what the initial message that's given ends up being much different than what happens at the end. <laughs> but I think what there there are two things that get at least two things that get missed there. And one is we really believe the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. And if you, you really take a close look at what the church teaches, when it really teaches, that's a statement of fact about the nature of God, about our salvation, or about our human nature, which is morals. Um, you don't find it changing, actually. You find it developing and growing, but you don't find it ever contradicting itself, which is not true, unfortunately, in the Protestant communities. They, they will change doctrine as times yeah. change to conform to, unfortunately, to conform to whatever is desired at the time. Here's this apostolic authority in the living church um, that seems to have an ability to resist the tendency of the age um, in season and out of season. So that seemed to me the mark of truth there. Well, uh, and I remember as a, as a Presbyterian Protestant, when I would be critical of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. I had this idea that things like the devotion to Mary was something mm-hmm. that grew later, was added right. on, that there was creativity you know, uh, that they, the leaders are pressured by their pagan uh, right. converts right. who converted en masse, right. you know, so they brought in this stuff. And, and really what we were doing was projecting onto the Catholic Church our own problems. Right. Right. Because the truth is when you look in the early church fathers, the one thing they weren't was experimental. Right. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to know where this was true, they would say, did this come from a church of the apostle? Exactly, yeah. That's what St. Augustine says, right? You look to the major churches, especially Rome, um, because there, because this, because uh, the other part of it is that uh, we're, we don't learn how to be a human being or to live like a human being from an instruction manual. Uh, we, we imitate people, as you were saying, um, 
our parents show us the way and so you've got it and it's not like the um like the telephone game because you have a you have a living community gathered together right. remembering together what was given to them and there's greater power in there to make sure that you're getting it right <laughs> right yeah. Uh, well, and the other thing I'm proud about the telephone game, which uh, is often used to destroy the reliability of tradition, is that you've got 10 people and you're passing on something like, okay, let's say my Aunt Tilly went to the store on Tuesday. Right. Well, and then when it comes out the other end, it's right. your Uncle Fred, you know, right. play golf. So, right. I mean, how did that get from here to there? Well, right. what we're talking about in this is oh, the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. guiding truth. Right, right. Not just some random statement. He's right. protecting truth. Right. And it's not as if the Pope says, you know, the, such and such a horse is going to win at the Kentucky Derby on right. Tuesday. No, it's not. Right. It's truth. Right. It, and it was an amazing thing for me to realize that, uh, you know, on paper, legally, the, there's no limit to the Pope's authority in the church, right? But there is a limit to the Pope's authority because he is only a servant of the deposit of faith. He can't just make new stuff up. He has to guard and protect it to hand it on so that in every time and age, there's the objective possibility of having the, the content of the faith. And... They don't. They, you have these amazing popes like, as I've brought up before, Alexander VI, who are, I mean, they're lecherous. They've got concubines or whatever. Yeah. What they never do is say, now our teaching about marriage is out because I <laughs> you know, right. I don't want people judging me or something. Um, so the pope is extremely limited. The higher you go up in the church, the more limited you are really in your authority because it has to be to guard and preserve um, what has been handed on because Christ revealed himself to the apostles. They handed that revelation on um, to their successors, and it's... Yeah, and there were times when um, the not-so-pristine popes were under great pressure to uh, set aside uh, difficult doctrines like the divinity of Christ or the Trinity when the whole world had gone Arian. Arian. Yeah, right. Uh, But the popes held true on this most difficult topic. Exactly. Athanasius and the Bishop of Rome. That's... Well, Father, we've uh, have, we've saved a bunch of verses for the next time you visit us, sure. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you. I mean, even if we'd gone into Luke ten sixteen, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me. That brings us right along the same topic right. we've been talking about. Right. So, thanks again, Father. Oh, and, my uh, pleasure. What What parish are you with again? Saint Alphonsus in Chicago. So. All right, good. Well, maybe some of our listeners who are in the Chicago area might look you up. Oh, you're very welcome. All yeah, right. Well, thank you again, Father, for joining us on Deep in Scripture and. Those of you listening, I hope this was an encouragement to you. If you're interested in more information about our work, you can go to www.chnetwork.org where you can even watch this program on the Internet but also find out all the work we do with helping clergy and others come home to the Catholic Church or go to ewtn.com which you'll find out all kinds of great stuff about our great Catholic faith. God bless you. See you next week.